everyone. This is Amanda Borchel Dan. And I'm Jessica Steinberg, your host for Times Will Tell, a weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. Welcome to Times Will Tell. I'm Amanda Borchel Dan. This week, I'm speaking with journalist Joshua Prager, the author of last year's The Family Row, an American story. It is a finalist for the 2022 Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction. The Family Row tells the larger story of abortion in America through focusing on the stories of Jane Roe, Norma McCorvey, and her three daughters, including the baby she was carrying that spawned Roe v. Wade. Our conversation was prompted by a leaked draft of a Supreme Court decision that could overturn the constitutional right to an abortion in America. We discuss this potential decision's implications. And finally, we talk about another book Josh wrote, Half-Life, which charts the aftermath of a 1994 bus accident in Israel that left him paralyzed. Stay tuned to hear about what Josh is working on next. Hi, Josh. Thanks for joining me today. Where am I finding you today? New Jersey. New Jersey. Okay, we are obviously here to discuss a most serious issue, abortion. And your book, The Family Row, tells the larger story of abortion through the lens of a family. And it's just such an amazing way to tell the story. But of course, we're here because of the leaked Supreme Court decision, which may or may not be accurate, correct? But briefly, could you just say what this decision would do? Sure. Roe v. Wade in 1973 said that there is a constitutional right to abortion, that women have a legal right to abortion. And it was suddenly legal in all 50 states. Um, Previous uh, to Roe, it was legal in a few states. For example, in 1967, Ronald Reagan, who was then the pro-choice governor of California, um, signed into law a law saying that abortion was legal up until the 20th week of pregnancy. But Roe made it legal everywhere. And this decision would invalidate Roe. And in so doing, it would return the issue of abortion to the states to leave it to all 50 states to sort of adjudicate and legislate for itself. And as a result of that, we know that abortion would be roughly illegal in half of the states. I should say illegal in roughly half of the states. And You can guess which states it would be illegal in and which ones it wouldn't. Um, It would generally correspond to sort of the red-blue divide in this country, which would mean, just to sort of cut right to it, that the great majority of women and girls who would not have access to abortion would be poor and disproportionately women of color, whereas white people, people of means, they would, of course, have no issue. So it's a situation that would just sort of exacerbate this divide in our country. Now, I understand that approximately one in four American women eventually seek an abortion at some point during their lives. I also understand that since I moved from the States in 1999, there's an upswing in what would be called medical abortions, meaning taking pills in place of going to a clinic for abortion. How would this decision affect that? So that's a very good question. Um, I'll just say one of the things you just mentioned, the one in four statistic is accurate. It's also 
dramatically down from where it once was. It used to be one in every 2.3 women. And there are reasons for that on both sides. The fact that there's greater access to contraception, for example, which is sort of born of the pro-choice efforts, and the fact that there have been enormous sort of impediments thrown in the way of women seeking abortions from the pro-life side. So those are both sides have sort of contributed to that dramatic drop, but obviously still an enormous number of women um, have abortions in this country. In terms of medical abortions, you know, that is a wonderful option for people, but it is only possible up until around the 10th week of pregnancy. In terms of how a woman can have uh, a medical abortion, there are two pills that she takes. And what you ask is going to go right to the heart of where this overturning of Roe, which will in all likelihood happen, where it will lead us. It will lead to these legislative battles. And the pro-life side is not going to be content with simply overturning Roe and returning the question to the states. It is then going to shift its sort of focus and its strategies to invalidating that too. Now, there are a lot of feminist organizations that enable women to get these pills through the mail, but already there are sort of bills being introduced in various states looking ahead to the overturning of Roe, which will say that a woman is not allowed to get these pills through the mail. How exactly a state would prevent a woman from doing so is another question. But um, basically the overturning of Roe is going to just shift our focus now to all of these other battles. There are even bills being introduced in some states, which is really shocking that this could happen in a democracy to prevent women from going from a state where it's not legal to a state where it's legal. So um, there are this problem, you know, we could talk more about it. Obviously, this is not nearly as divisive an issue in Israel or in just about any other country. Why Dafka it is in America is a, is a good question, um, but it is. It has sort of, you know, the various, obviously having an abortion is the same in America as having an abortion anywhere, but it has uniquely cleaved our country. And it's a big, big problem. You mentioned that you can't believe this is happening in a democracy. And in fact, if I understand correctly, only three other nations in the world have become more strict in their abortion policy. And that includes Poland. Is that a democracy at this point? I think also maybe El Salvador. You know, this is a very questionable situation. Can this be done in a democratic nation? And I suppose we're soon going to find out. Yeah, you know, What's so interesting also, just to sort of step back, is what's happening in this country, in America, is sort of counter to what's happening in most countries around the world in terms of this issue. Places like Ireland, and I believe Brazil, which are, you know, religious, these are countries where obviously predominantly Catholic, they have been sort of um, going the other way and saying that, you know, and legalizing abortion, whereas in this country, it's going the other way. You know, America is obviously has been for for the world a beacon of democracy, but it is also um, to to look at it a puritanical country. You know the the roots of this country are very puritanical, and the very problem why like uniquely here this issue has divided the country. I think ultimately it has to do with the sort of seeming incompatibility of sex and religion. Um, those two things seem to be at odds in our country in a way that they aren't in most other countries. And it has served both sides to sort of seek to capitalize upon that seeming incompatibility. And it has been politicized by both sides. Just to sort of say what's fascinating, in 1973, 
when when the Supreme Court ruled on Roe seven to two, saying that, you know, abortion was now going to be legal. It was not a partisan issue. People don't realize that Republicans, Democrats, they were completely um, in sync on this to the point, in fact, that if either side could be said to be sort of putatively pro-choice, it was really the Republican side. Um, They had issues of overpopulation. There were many pro-life, prominent pro-lifers on the Democratic side, such as Senator Kennedy, Ted Kennedy. It was often the Catholics who were pro-life no matter which party they were in. And what happened was the politicization of this sort of began pre-Roe when Richard Nixon, who was president, was told by one of his advisors, Pat Buchanan, hey, there are votes to be won by coming out against abortion. We can get votes from left-leaning Catholics who are pro-life, and we can sort of bring them into our side here. And so Nixon, who had who had signed into law sort of a very, um, he had said that abortion could be subsidized at military hospitals. He about faced on this. And if you can point to sort of one beginning of the political politicization of all this, that really is when it was. And that was 1971. I mean, here we are now where there is literally no greater indicator of political affiliation in America than where you stand on row. It is almost impossible to be now an, an elected official, an elected Republican who is pro-choice, and an elected Democrat who was pro-life. And as you mentioned in an article that I read in preparation for this the interview, Roe v. Wade, Roe versus Wade, is one of the only court cases that basically every American can cite, can actually know what the name of a court case is. You can even get rid of any qualifiers. It is the only one. Yeah. Um, it is the only one. Um, and there are reasons for that. The great reason is just because it has become sort of like like a, a Rorschach test. It's where do you stand on this? It's where you stand on everything else. Every politician, it, it's kind of ridiculous now. It's gotten to the point that whenever we have a Senate confirmation hearing for a Supreme Court justice, someone who wants a judge who is a who was nominated by a president to become a Supreme Court justice, the whole confirmation hearing is basically about Roe. Where do you stand on Roe? And then there's this ludicrous charade where the, where the judges have to pretend they basically never heard of it, have no opinion of it. And then, of course, the moment they get onto the court, we know exactly what they think. And that has never been truer than right now, where you see Trump, you know, the former president Trump's his three, his he, he appointed a third of the Supreme Court and these three people are are incredibly uh, far right. He basically was correct in what he said. He said, if you elect me, I will put pro-life judges on the court. That is exactly what happened. What is sort of tragic, if you are a person who believes in a right to in a woman's right to choose, is two of these picks never should have fallen into his lap. One was there was a whole without stepping into the whole thing. There was um, at the end of Obama's presidency, um, there, there was an opening and Obama nominated Merrick Garland, but it never happened because of a staggering sort of political maneuver by the right to say, oh, it's too late in the presidency for us to sort of put someone on the court. They basically stole that pick. No one thought Trump would defeat Hillary Clinton, but he did and got that pick. And then the last pick was um, really just owes to the hubris of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So the late term abortion of Merrick Garland, essentially, and uh the the hubris of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Hi. 
Hi, podcast listeners. The Times of Israel is celebrating a decade this year, and I'm happy to invite you to our kickoff TOI at 10 live event series. Join us May 24th at Jerusalem's first station for Who by Fire, Leonard Cohen and the Yom Kippur War. Author Matty Friedman will be in conversation with TOI editor David Horvitz to discuss his new book on the singer-priest's extraordinary tour for IDF troops in 1973. And of course, there will be live music. If you're in Israel, please join us. If you're not, we'll share a recording after the event exclusively with our TOI community members. For more information and tickets, go to timesofisrael.com slash TOI10. That's timesofisrael.com slash TOI10. Hope to see you there. So I have to ask you, obviously, what does a nice Jewish boy, man like you, (laughs) what are you doing writing about this topic of all things that obviously, biologically, at least, does not concern you? No, you're right. And, you know, we could discuss what it is in our country. It's also, and this has changed in the 11 years it took me to write it, where this sort of idea of who gets to tell the story, how can a, a man tell a story that is sort of by and for women? But before we discuss that, um, I'll say, yeah, how the hell did I get into this? So I would never have imagined myself doing this. Um, I didn't know much at all about Roe v. Wade when I started, or I hadn't really even thought much about abortion. Um, what, ha- what, what, what I am fascinated by, though, are sort of unknowns, um, secrets connected to historical things. Just to give one example, there was only one ever anonymous winner, recipient of a Pulitzer Prize. And when I learned that, that someone had taken a photograph of an execution in Iran um, during the Islamic Revolution, I became fascinated to know who that person was. I actually went to Iran. If you want to ask a question, what's a nice Jewish boy doing in Iran? (laughs) That's another question. Um, I went to Iran. I found this person, got him to tell me his remarkable story. And, and secrecy and lies, these are things that I've paid a lot of attention to. I, I looked at unknowns connected to a famous baseball game and a children's book. One more example that might be interesting to your audience, it was unknown um, until I wrote about it that the parents of Raoul Wallenberg, the you know Swedish diplomat, the hero who saved the lives of so many Jews at the end of the Holocaust, what was not known is that his parents had committed suicide. Um, I had found that they had kept a diary and I went and spoke to the family and they shared this with me. And that pointed up, that's a good sort of transition here through each of these sort of stories. So through the Wallenberg story, I was able to look at a much larger story, which is the pitfalls of, of neutrality. And if you um, are a neutral government, what does that really mean in terms of morality? Um, they had sabotaged the Wallenbergs' efforts to try and find out what happened to their son. Anyway, so similarly in this case, I was in France actually for a year, and I was reading an article in the New Yorker magazine about gay marriage, and it mentioned in passing the plaintiff, Jane Roe, the woman whose unwanted pregnancy led her to file suit and become the sort of plaintiff in the case Roe v. Wade. And it mentioned that she had not had an abortion because of course, um, a lawsuit takes longer than the gestation of a pregnancy. And all of a sudden, this light bulb went off in my head. I said, wow, that means that somewhere there is a child whose conception 
led to Roe v. Wade. That child at that point would then have been 40 years old. And I looked on the internet and I saw that in this country, in America, the pro-life are obsessed with the this anonymous person. Who is this person? They looked at that person as the sort of living incarnation of their argument against abortion. They would say, you know, had Roe been um, in place when Norma was pregnant, you would have murdered this human being. They can point to an actual person and say you would have murdered her. And I had this inkling that even though Norma McCorby, Jane Roe, had put the child up for adoption, that child would have somehow found out who she was. That just seemed to me likely. And I was in France. I reached out to Norma through a priest I found on the internet who knew her. Um, she did not wish to speak with me. I then, one year later, found my way to her partner. Norma was gay. And, you know, I talked about the incompatibility of sex and religion and why that's such an, why I think that's at the heart of the problems here in America. Well, you could not have found a better person who was sort of a microcosm of those issues because she came from a very religious family um, and sex was something seen as um, sinful, illicit, all the more so when she uh, when she came out um, to her parents when she was um, a teenager. Her mother told me she beat her when Norma came out. Anyway, again, sex and religion, sex and religion, something I, I wrote a lot about. Um, and so I found her partner and what Norma had left her not that long before because she'd had a stroke. Norma was much better at being taken care of than taking care of others. She'd left her. I went to visit this woman, a sort of poor down and out woman in Texas named Connie Gonzalez. And when I went back to visit her, she told me that the house that she had lived in where Norma had lived with her was about to be foreclosed on. And she said, oh, Norma's papers are in the garage or private papers, and they're going to be thrown out. And I said, do not throw them out. Can I please have them? She said, yes. I later acquired them from Norma. Norma did not want them at all. She said, I left them behind you know, on purpose. Those papers are now at the Schlesinger Library at Harvard for researchers. Anyway, on one piece of paper, out of those thousands of pieces of paper, and they were just a big mass of papers of jumble in no order, um, just a mess. And on one piece of paper, there was the birth date of the Roe baby. This person in the pro-life called the Roe baby. To press fast forward, I later found myself to her. I didn't reach out to her directly in case she did not know who she had been born to. I reached out to her mother, but they did know about Norma. And at first, she did not wish to speak. I then reached out to the other children Norma had given birth to. Um, I found them. They did, they did wish to participate with my book. And then Shelly, the role baby, did too. And my book sort of tells the story of Norma and her three daughters. Of course, they're all women. And then I surrounded that family. And they really were not a family in the, other than sort of biologically connected. Um, but I surrounded that group of women with three other people all from Texas. Every one of my folk was from Texas. Two doctors, one on the pro-choice side, one on the pro-life side, and then a lawyer. And these seven people enabled me to tell this very big, complicated, polarizing story of abortion in America. But in very, very human terms, you become invested in these people. You want to know what happens. And just to sort of say, you know, the two camps in our country have become truly extreme. And even for a person like me who is pro-choice, you know, I call it like it is. I did not write this book as an activist. I wrote it as a journalist. And I acknowledge that abortion is fraught for good reason. You know, it is a complicated issue. And people in this country do not wish to acknowledge that. And what's been very gratifying for me, if I can say, is my book has been really, really 
deeply appreciated by people on both sides of the issue. It's got to be the only book in America where, you know, Linda Greenhouse, um, a New York Times reporter who's devoted herself to sort of arguing on behalf of women's rights. And, you know, one of the heads of the Southern Baptist Convention who just had me on his podcast to talk about the book agree. They feel that the book is honest and fair. And that's very, very gratifying for me. Possibly because it is such a human-focused story. Actually, we have this whole titular case, Roe v. Wade, but the Roe in this case is such not the poster child for really anything. One of the things that uh, jumped out at me as well is that in going through her documents, you noted that she wrote down specific important things that happened on certain days. And one of the things she wrote down was that the fourth Arab-Israeli war took place, but she didn't exactly note that Roe v. Wade was handed down on that same day. It's just this case happened to her. She didn't at all cause it to happen. Absolutely. That was an amazing thing for me to notice in her. In her, I was sort of thrilled to see that she had not noted, you know, Israel. But then, yeah, you're exactly right. Here's why. She was not at the time pro-choice. She did not think about women's rights. She did not even care to sort of further women's rights. She simply wanted an abortion. And what, if I can say, is sort of a sign that I was really fair to both sides. What's very depressing, if you are a person who believes in this, in, in a woman's right to choose, is the way she was treated by the pro-choice movement. They treated her like garbage. She was not educated. They marginalized her. They kept her at arm's length. They didn't give her a seat at the table. They used her. And they didn't even try, you know, she she was the, her pregnancy was moving along when they met her. It was approaching the end of the second trimester. But I mentioned earlier, Ronald Reagan, California, she could have gone to California. She could have gone to Mexico, south of Texas, um, to get abortions, even at that stage um, in her pregnancy. And in fact, one of her two lawyers, Sarah Weddington, worked at an abortion referral network that flew women to California, and she herself had had an abortion. She did not tell Norma these things because, of course, Norma was more valuable to these lawyers as a plaintiff. And so they didn't say this, which is really sort of a gross injustice. It's not. And in fact, Sarah Weddington had even worked for she had worked helping to draft the ethical standards for the um, I think it was the American Bar Association, this big association of lawyers. So she knew better. And Norma finds this out years later. In 1992, when Sarah writes a book, she's furious. And that, more than anything, is what leads Norma to switch sides a few years later and to join the pro-life community. Of course, she was unfortunately exploited by that side, too. And she, she gave as good as she got. She was a very difficult woman. She wrung a sort of living, a meager living out of her plaintiffship. But it is a sad story. It's a very American story, too. Like, you know, we mentioned, I just said, you know, she becomes born again. Of course, you know, the, the the minister who baptizes her, he blow dries his hair and dyes his teeth white and the cameras are rolling while she's being dipped into a Texas swimming pool. It's a ludicrous thing. Very, very American story. Okay. I can't believe that you've written all of this and so many more books with only one finger of your right hand. Is that correct? <laughs> that is accurate. And the figure has switched because um, when you type millions of keystrokes with one finger, it is unpleasant. And so I've gone from my index finger to my middle finger and I'm, and I'm, it's getting tired. So I think I'm going to soon be switching to my, my ring finger, but I think I'm, I'm 51 years old. I think my right hand will help me make it to the end of the line. (laughs) (laughs) And let's tell our listeners why that is, of course, and today is a very important date in, in that story. 
It is. Um, today, by coincidence, is the 32nd anniversary of a very bad bus accident I was in when I was in Israel for a year after high school. And I had a spinal cord injury. My neck was broken. I was sitting in the back of a um, minibus that was hit by a runaway truck. You know, I'll just say what's really interesting. I love Israel. I miss Israel. I haven't been back since my uh, honeymoon um, eight years ago. And in the years since I have not, in the years since I've been away, Israel has taken steps to change the very place where my accident happened, Sivuv Mozart, right before the ascent to Jerusalem. It was called all these horrible things like Sivuv Amabet and Kvish Adamim. And Israel undertook to change that. So they spent an enormous amount of money and it took a lot of years to artificially alter the landscape there. So the the slope is less severe, the turn is less sharp. And now, wonderfully, the, the very place where my accident happened literally does not exist. It is not on a map. Um, so that made me think of a line in my beloved Moby Dick. He says something they're talking about where Queequeg is from. And he says, it's not on a map. No true places ever are. So the place that is very important in my life is no longer on a map, but that is a very good thing. But yes, I had a spinal cord injury. I used a wheelchair for four years and it actually, you know, I'm not a person who believes when people say Gamzu Tova, this too is for the best. I don't believe in that. But I mention that because there nonetheless was a really wonderful silver lining to my accident, the silver lining to this um, disability, which is that it led me to become a writer. I had thought about being um, a doctor beforehand and for various reasons, it led me to write and I love it. And I think I'm better at it than I would have been at other things. But yes, my body is divided vertically. Most people who have a spinal cord injury, they're divided sort of, they're either quadriplegics, which means they can't use all four of their limbs. They're kind of paralyzed from the neck down or they're paraplegics where they can't use their legs um, and maybe use of their hands as well. I'm divided vertically called a hemiplegic, which is much more common in a stroke victim. My right side works well. It doesn't have sensation, good sensation, but it is very strong and, and normal in, in terms of its you know ability to walk. And you, you know my arms and legs work well, my right arm and right leg. But my, so I type with one hand, but it was easier for me for various reasons, because it's still a little tight to type with sort of one finger at a time. So that is one ludicrous manifestation of my disability, but it has not gotten the way. I'll say one positive thing that's just sort of occurs to me now as well. You know, when you are disabled and I walk with a cane, you, you can't run and it forces you to sort of take your time and to look around and to observe. And that has also sort of benefited me as a journalist. I do take my time and I think, you know, the kind of writing that I do is really sort of very in-depth. And so, you know, this book, for example, took me 11 years. But yes, disability is a big part of, of my life, and, and Israel is too. So anyone who wants to read an excerpt of the book talking about this accident, Half-Life can see it. I'll put a link in the program notes. You kindly gave us an excerpt in 2013 when the Times of Israel was just beginning. You gave us the chapter. You know what? I'll just tell you one thing. Um, sorry to interrupt you. Um, my, my book on Roe has sort of 
led to interest in in my book Half Life, and it was just released at that time as an ebook, and I gave a TED talk about it, and then it sort of went away. But it's going to be published. Um, I haven't mentioned that to anyone. It's going to be published as a regular book, a book on paper. I guess a book about a spinal cord injury needs a an actual spine. <laughs> so my book will be published, um, I think, in another year or so. Um, so that's a nice feeling for me. Well, you preempted my question because I was about to say, well, this book, The Family Row, was just named a Pulitzer Prize finalist. What is your next project? And so you have to have something else behind it besides Half-Life at this point. I do. I'll, I'll, be, and, I'll be adding two, paragraph, uh, two chapters, excuse me, to that book, including one on parenthood. There's nothing I have loved. Nothing I wanted all my life more than to become a parent. I don't have seven kids like you, but I've got two. And they're great. My girls, six and four, they walk around telling everyone um, about my book. It was dedicated to us. <laughs> that is true. Um, um, but I do have other projects. In the fall, I have a long article coming out, I think in the Atlantic, about affirmative action. Just like this book on Roe sort of humanizes this very complicated issue so too, that article will look back at an unknown history, another sort of missing thing, a secret connected to a period at Harvard Law School in World War II. And this Supreme Court that is really very, very extreme in our country, it's an activist court. They are probably going to be overturning affirmative action in the fall. Um, there is a case based at Harvard. And so that article took me a while. It's coming out. And then I have been thinking about there are various sort of non-writing projects I'm going to be doing, but I've been thinking also, is there another sort of large, big book I want to dive into? And I don't know yet if I will do this, but I've become very interested in um, a man named James Watson, who um, Watson and Crick are the men who, you know, solve the mystery of the double helix and genes. And he's 94 years old. He lives not far from me. And he said some very controversial things about race. He's a person who I think would enable me to tell, again, just like with this book, a very large, important story, but through a sort of flawed human being. Um, and I think I think that is something I'm thinking about doing. That would be another 10 years, God help me. So we'll see. <laughs> I look forward to both of these projects and to speaking with you again about them. Thank you so much for uh, having me. It's an honor and um, uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Times Will Tell from the Times of Israel. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein. Please subscribe wherever you find your podcast and check out our daily briefing news show every Sunday through Thursday. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. Until next week. Shalom. Shalom.